Welcome to the iConnect with Baxter Canada podcast. This is where we connect with healthcare providers from various clinical settings to learn more about how they are leading through innovation, protocol development, and integration of evidence to provide excellent clinical care to their patients. Join the conversation with your hosts from Medical Affairs at Baxter Canada. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode of iConnect with Baxter Canada podcast. My name is Michelle DeGloria. I am a registered nurse and a medical science liaison supporting the medication delivery team at Baxter Canada, and I will be your host for this episode. As always, our goal is to bring you interesting and relevant topics that influence your day-to-day practice as a clinician. I'm excited to welcome Kelly Gould and Rupi Riot from Baxter Canada's SIVA Drug Preparation Premises in Mississauga, Ontario. Thank you for listening. Thank you for joining us today. I am joined by Kelly Gould and Rupi Riot, and I'm going to turn it over to them to introduce their current role, their experience, and where they're joining us from today. Kelly? Hi, thank you, Michelle. I really appreciate uh, you reaching out to do this. I'm really excited to talk about this. Um, So my name is Kelly Gould. Uh, I work at the Baxter Siva Pharmacy Center. Um, My role is continuous improvement lead, which means I'm involved in a lot of operational excellence. I've been with Baxter for just over 10 years in a couple different um, roles. Um, uh, Right now, I am calling you from uh, my home. Uh, so if you hear a couple of screaming toddlers in the background, please forgive me. I, I have twin girls that do not appreciate mommy's working hours. <laughs> Completely understand. I've been there, not with twins, thankfully, um, but I have definitely experienced the toddler uh, life. <laughs> and Rupi? Thank you, Rochelle. Um so I am the um, GMP specialist at SIVA uh, um, slash the sterile compounding supervisor. Um, so I've had quite of a, a long growth here at SIVA. I started off initially as a technician, moved into the pharmacist role, moved into the supervisor role, and have finally settled on the GMP slash sterile compounding supervisor role. And uh, I'm involved in a lot of the compliance um, activities and the compounding activities here at SIVA. Fantastic. And... If you hear screaming people behind me, it's not children. (laughs) (laughs) Should we be more concerned if we hear screaming from your end, Rupi? Michelle, no one. It's lunchtime activity. (laughs) (laughs) So today I've asked both of you to join me to talk about the NAPRA guidelines and help our listeners understand what the guidelines are, what the heck does NAPRA stand for, and what influence they have on organizations and clinicians. So Kelly, I'm going to start with you and I'm going to ask what are NAPRA guidelines and what does NAPRA stand for? Okay, sure. No problem. It's an, it's an, that's an easy one. It's uh, the National Association of Pharmacy Regulatory Authorities. So um, like a lot of healthcare um, um regulation. Now that actually occur the, the regulation of, of pharmacy actually occurs at a provincial level. So every province has its own um, regulatory authority in Ontario, that being the Ontario College of Pharmacists. So each of the provinces has different regulatory authorities or agencies that regulate the profession of pharmacy. And so the National Association of Pharmacy Regulatory Authorities is more of like a national guidelines that kind of links all these kind of requirements and um, 
you know, principles and policies um, of the various individual provinces and kind of brings them together under a single scope. Um, it also assists to provide guidance on things that are more at a federal level, for example, example drug schedules, drug schedules being um, how a particular product is intended to be sold. And that actually is uh, more of a federal legislation. So um, the NAPR guidelines are, are just kind of that overarching uh, group of um, individual provincial regulatory authorities that come together. So is there an option? Are they optional? Is it, you know, by province to province, do they have the option of following these guidelines or are they really sort of adopted nationally, but every province is responsible for enforcing? So, yeah, that is exactly it. Every province is responsible for enforcing and they've done so at different um, paces and with different um, levels of uh, buy-in, I guess is probably the best thing to say. And timeline is there was there ever a set timeline where all organizations should have adopted and implemented these guidelines or is it again varies provincially and I'm sure COVID has thrown a wrench into any sort of um, concrete timelines yeah so the the guidelines were set out I think actually published initially in in 2016 with the understanding that you know 2019 was the intended um, go live. Um, however, I mean, you know, some of the, some of the changes were quite, um, difficult for some facilities to maintain and that's, or, or implement. And that really had to do with whether or not there was infrastructure, um, changes required. And, you know, with infrastructure comes capital and, you know, capital in healthcare is not always the easiest thing to find. So, um, you know, yes, it, to a large extent, it has been uptaken in, various ways with different uh, timelines by the different provinces. But of course, everybody's kind of working towards a common goal of, you know, uh, in, in, ensuring patient safety. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about how the guidelines influence medication prep preparation in the pharmacy? Um, I can help answer that one. Um, so there are a lot of high quality standards that need to be met um, to ensure there's patient safety and um, correct therapy being delivered to a patient. So um, adapting and adopting these um, standards, it allows us to set this consistent process. It allows to ensure that, you know, every quality parameter is being met here at the facility, down to the cleaning, down to the formulation that's being used, um, down to the inventory, down to the training of all of our individuals. And by adopting these standards, we're making sure that we are delivering a quality product um, and a safe product to our uh, patients. And these standards are applicable whether you are in an individual hospital pharmacy or in a sterile compounding facility such as the SIVA Center. So these standards are applicable for um, institutions that are um, carrying out um, non, sorry, non-hazardous sterile compounding preparations as well as sterile hazardous compounding preparations. So they would be applicable to hospital settings as well as DPPs. Okay, excellent. And what about um, as a nurse, I certainly have had lots of experience with compounding at the bedside, perhaps in a medication preparation room, um, sometimes walking down the hallway on my way to a patient's room. How do the NAPRA guidelines apply to that scenario um, at the bedside by the nurse or the care provider? Um, so 
within the NAPRA standards is um, label information. And I would think as a nurse, and, and you can speak to this, um, I'm sure, is that when you come across um, a, a drug, an IV therapy, you have all these checks that you need to, to make before you administer. So the correct name of the drug, the crypto, the administration, the storage, all of that information, I'm um, on all of that guidance is provided by NAPRA, what should be on a product, which would then be used at bedside um, for confirmation that it is the correct dose that's being delivered to a patient. Um, and what options are in place to assist organizations to meet these guidelines? And I know, Kelly, you mentioned that infrastructure often requires a huge capital investment, and we know that um, that's not always easy, nor is it always easy to add a wing on to a hospital to <laughs> add the infrastructure that is necessary, even if the capital dollars are there. So what options are in place to assist organizations in meeting the guidelines? Sure. Um, so, you know, early on when, when the guidelines were published, a lot of the regulatory agencies kind of asked facilities to do sort of a gap analysis to understand, you know, where they were and where they needed to be um, with respect to the NAPRA guidelines. Um, you know, and, you know, there, there are some things that are hard and fast in terms of requirements. So exam- for example, the what what is a uh, ISO 5 or a grade A environment for actually doing compounding versus um, a grade B ISO 7 requirement for the background to compounding. And those are those are hard and fast, you know, requirements. Um, but there are other things in terms of reducing risk. So where uh, some of the uh, infrastructure was was lacking. Um, you know, there was the option to do some things like, for example, pull back beyond use dating to uh, mitigate the risk. So, uh, really, what organizations should do or have been doing um, is to kind of look at that gap analysis and see where the risk truly lies. Um, you know, with respect to the products that they are offering, um, you know, perhaps stop offering some things that are high risk preparations, and you know, um, find some other method to provide that clinical care or to do things like reduce beyond use dating. So there's, there's a couple of ways, um, you know, that organizations have been working to meet these. And of course, the regulatory authorities are there to kind of work with um, healthcare professionals and, and, you know, again, understanding that um, positive patient outcomes and, you know, patient care is at the center of the spirit of, of the guidelines and what the professional pharmacy is trying to accomplish. Excellent. So I'm just going to pull on that point you made about beyond use dating. And I'm wondering if you could explain that a little bit more, perhaps to our listeners who aren't familiar with the term and what that actually means from what are the implications to beyond use dating and how is that uh, beneficial or maybe not as beneficial to organizations? Sure. So beyond use dating is really the time which, you know, the, the therapy should not be initiated beyond. And that has to do with a relative time period from when it was compounded or mixed. Um, and there's a number of factors that influence beyond use dating. Um, so the drug being probably the greatest one, um, because some chemicals, some medications are inherently labile and they, you know, aren't stable um, in different forms. And so, you know, for example, they, they exist in lipolized powders and need to be reconstituted prior to use because of um, how unstable they can be. Um, the diluent in which these things are mixed, the concentration, the final container, all of these things influence some of the chemical stability of the drug. Um, but there's also a second component to that, and that has to do with microbial risk. So, um, you know, a- anything that starts off 
sterile is, you know, at risk as soon as you manipulate it in any way. Um, the environment in which you manipulate it, the um, techniques that you use to manipulate it um, can quickly turn sterile products into non-sterile products. So beyond use dating is also a component associated with um, the, the increased risk of microbial uh, proliferation within um, the admixture. Um, obviously understanding that, you know, IV therapies are very particular and that once they're administered, um, there's not really a whole lot of going back <laughs> and, uh, you know, there's not, our, our body's protections kind of cease in terms of being able to um, fight off in, in the introduced infection that could happen with a non-sterile product. So those are a lot of things that influence beyond use dating. It's the chemical stability, the uh, diluent, the container closure, um, and also the risk of microbial proliferation. How does beyond use dating affect some of those multi-use uh, vials, for example, where you may be taking a, a portion out for a particular patient, but then there's still drug remaining? Does that have a significant impact on um, how that drug is used? And obviously, taking into consideration all of the other factors, the diluent, the drug, stability, et cetera. But I'm wondering if you had a fairly stable drug, does that change how it's stored in the pharmacy, utilized um, on a go-forward basis, and what are some of the implications? Right. Um, so a, a product that is considered a multi-use product does have um, a... Uh, uh, God, I'm so sorry. My, my brain has stopped there for a second. So a product that is a multi-use drug does have a preservative in it. Um, you know, uh, things that contain preservatives, however, are often incompatible with different routes of administration. So, uh, for example, you'll you'll seldom see uh, something with a preservative used in an epidural preparation, for example. Right. So, you know, so some things you just cannot have, um, you know, a preservatives introduced into the body in however dilute a form eventually. Um, so they must be preservative free. Um, it, at the end of the day, the, the manufacturer of the product is that product's, you know, um, product owner and, and will stipulate when something can be um, theoretically, um, you know, used more than one time and kept potentially out of an, uh, an aseptic environment. Uh, however, uh, that is in, in an ideal circumstance and, uh, you know, puncturing a container in a non-ideal circumstance is really risk it introduces the, the risk of contamination to the vial irrespective of whether there is a preservative. Ruby, I'm wondering if you can tell me what some of the benefits are for patients when NAPR guidelines are implemented. Sure. So um, by implementing the, the NAPR guidelines, you're ensuring that your uh, facility and your trained personnel are um, using a standardized approach uh, when manipulating sterile products, and the key thing is that they understand um, that there's no introduction of microorganisms, which could potentially then enter uh, a patient and could have um, significant impact on that patient's health. So implementing standards like this, um, it ensures that, you know, your clean rooms are in a certain state of control. Your operators are um, constantly being um trained and um, your environmental monitoring program um, is giving you the results that they should um, when it comes to compounding these products. So essentially, following guidelines like this and implementing them and ensuring that your, your facility is in a state of control ensures that your patient is safe and is receiving safe medication. 
and the benefits for clinicians and organizations? I think it boils back down to patient safety. Um, and so your organization and, cl- and your clinicians can trust that the product that's being um, compounded by the operators or technicians um, are being done so the way uh, to ensure that patients are, are receiving the correct medication, um, the correct uh, therapy in general, and that it's a safe, a safe um, medication that's being administered to them. And earlier, it sounded like um, the guidelines really do focus a lot on process and education and the provider. And I would imagine having some consistent expectations, consistent, um, you know, steps in, in achieving something also would be very beneficial in knowing that everyone's doing the same thing and there is little room for variation, Absolutely. And the guidelines also provide you with um, checks and balances. So they put in requirements for how frequently your operators need to be um, trained. Um, They have to undergo uh, validations and qualifications and requalifications, um, what the expectation is from the quality team, uh, as well as from um, an environment. So how frequently your operators need to um, have samples done of their of their gowns to look for microbial growth, um, media fills. Um, and then it also describes other processes that you need to ensure before um, you uh, compound sterile products. For organizations, this that part alone sounds like a fairly significant undertaking. Um, have you found in your environment what ha- like what was the easiest to adopt, what was more difficult, and what are you hearing from other organizations as far as where they sort of have struggled um, maybe beyond the infrastructure piece? Uh, so I, I can I can take that one, Michelle. So um, you know I get a number of questions uh, from from people in, in the field. Um, and I, I think probably one of the things that they struggle most with are tr- is training. Um, so, you know, it's it's one thing to kind of have processes in, in place, um, but it's another thing to maintain those processes and just make sure that, you know, people um, are following what they're supposed to be doing, that, you know, the expectations are consistently communicated and that those, um, the, the actions actually meet what the policies say. So like having that type of oversight and, and retraining and requalification, because you, you can put all the things that you want in place in terms of infrastructure engineering. Um, but if the training isn't there um, and if the training is not maintained, then, you know, it's, it's, it, it's all for naught in essence. Right. Right. Um, I'm wondering as we close up this discussion, if there are, what the top three things that should be considered when implementing NAPRA guidelines in organizations, if you want to take a stab at, at those, what you think are the most, the top three important things? Uh, so, yeah, no, no problem. Uh, so, I mean, you know, we talked about a couple ways, a, a couple, like we've pointed to it a couple times in terms of the infrastructure. So engineering um, is, is something that um, needs to be there uh, in order to provide the um, aseptic environment. Um, but 
Uh, other two things that I, I'd probably say that are, are critical are having a, a quality system in place. And that means, you know, that you're able to detect a problem um, before it happens. So something that can detect issues and correct them um, to make sure that you maintain inside of a state of control. Um, and that can be anything that reaches things from labeling to microbial um, control um, to, you know, the, the clinical um oversight to what the product is, to the products that are being made. Um, and then what I just mentioned a little bit ago was training. So, you know, again, if you, if you don't have the training in place, you don't have the training structure in place, um, you quickly lose your ability to, um, you know, maintain that state of control and to um, actually use all of that capital investment um, that you've put in, in in order to ensure a quality system. So infrastructure, quality system, and training would be my top three, I'd say. Amazing. Thank you so much, Kelly and Rupi, for joining me today. It's been fascinating. I always love to sort of expand my uh, knowledge into different areas, and this has been very enlightening. So thank you so much. It's a pleasure, Michelle. Thanks, Michelle. Thanks for listening to today's episode. To listen to more episodes like this, be sure to subscribe to ensure you always receive notification. Please reach out to us by email if you have any questions, comments, or feedback. We look forward to having you back with us next time. Thank you for joining us for the episode of I Connect with Baxter. All of the opinions and experiences expressed in this episode are those of the guest speaker and do not necessarily reflect those of Baxter Canada. If there are other areas of interest you would like to see included on future podcasts, please email those to iconnect.baxter.com.